welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today, we are continuing in our our 40 days of prayer. We're actually embarking on a new week. This week, our themed prayer is praying for the church. And so if you're not familiar, maybe you're joining us for the first time online or for joining us here on campus. If you're not familiar with the the series we're in, it's 40 days of prayer. It's actually six weeks. And uh, the the progression that we're working through over the six weeks that's depicted in this image that we're using here on, on the title slide You see that um, we began, the very first week was the trunk of the tree. It's personal prayer rooted in Jesus. And so that week we brought our personal lives before God and we said, God, would you search us and know us? We prayed through Psalm 139 every day. Uh, This next week we moved up into home. And so last week we were praying over our homes, which means our most uh, immediate relationships, our most immediate proximity. Uh, We we prayed over our our home life. And then today we're moving into that. Oh, you put that slide back up, sorry. Today we're moving into, um, into church. We're going to be praying for the church beginning this week. And then the, the remaining three weeks, we'll be praying over city, nation, and world. And so if you are just joining us today, it's, even though it's in the middle of a series, it's perfect timing because today's the first day of this new focus. And, uh, and so I want to give you a couple re- resources. Uh, this this uh, 40 days of prayer slide, this, this QR code that we're about to put up, if you scan that QR code with a smartphone, it'll pull up a link that takes you straight to that page that's listed on the bottom, vineyardboys.org slash 40 days. That page is a one-stop shop throughout this 40 days of prayer. Uh, and so, for example, at that page, you can sign up for a daily email, and every day you'll be emailed a devotion that's, that's for, for that day, like a, in a written form that is on this theme. Like, so this week, I got one this morning at about five in the morning, I think, that was, um, that was about this week's prayer. Uh, or today's prayer. So you can, you can sign up for daily devotion or you, alternatively, if you, if you prefer to do audio podcasts, we all learn differently and we have taken our information di- differently. So if you'd like to get an audio podcast, you can subscribe to it from there. Uh, or you can also download a PDF that is the full document that, that, that's for the full 40 days. It'll, you can take through the whole thing. So uh, that's up to you. But, um, but also, if, even if, you've, if you're already part of that, maybe you're already subscribed to either the email or the podcast or both. I tend to, to alternate between both. Um, but there's all, we're going to give you another resource today that I'm going to share with you a little bit later in the morning. And so you're going to want to bookmark that as well because we're continuing to update, update that page with more resources. So um, there you go. So as we get into the church, I want to begin with a quote that I read this week. Uh, from uh, a pastor named Tim Keller. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Tim Keller. He's not a, a vineyard pastor. He's actually a, a Presbyterian pastor who recently retired. Uh, he, he spent most of his ministry at a church in New York City, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian, f- fantastic church. Tim is, is one of the most respected pastors in, uh, I would say, in the U.S., respected across denominational lines. He's, he's often considered a, a pastor of pastors. Uh, he's a brilliant theologian, but he, he's somebody who um, has, has managed to blend both truth and grace and to bring those two things together. And not everyone can do that. Oftentimes, people err on the side of truth without grace or grace without truth. Jesus brought both together, and Tim does in a way as well that's really winsome. So anyway, he's writing this, this four-part long-form blogs. Okay, so there's blogs, I think they're dropping like every maybe month or two. And it's a four-part series, and the, this, the title is the, the Decline and the Renewal of the American Church. The Decline and the Renewal of the American Church. So I want to read you the, the, the closing quote from the, the one that dropped this last week. It was part two. The closing quote was from Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, and then Tim says, that is a promise. And there's no reason to believe that that promise has an expiration date. Isn't that, isn't that a great quote? Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell and nothing else will prevail against it. 
That's a promise that is, and, and there's no expiration date on that promise. So it's a, it was a great way to end part two because the first two parts of this blog and their long form articles were, um, they were sobering about the state of, of the American church. In fact, here's, here's the opening quote from, from the very first blog. It said, virtually everyone agrees that something is radically wrong with the church. Okay, not, and so he's speaking specifically about the church in North America, not the church globally. He's speaking specifically from his context. And he's a, he's a speaker who travels in a wide circle. So he said, virtually everyone agrees that something is radically wrong with the church. Inside, meaning this is what people within church might say, inside, there is more polarization and conflict than ever. With all factions agreeing, but for different reasons, that the church is in deep trouble. Meanwhile, outside of the church, journalists, sociologists, and all other observers either bemoan or celebrate the church's decline. The church's decline as measured numerically, institutionally, and in influence. Keller's, the, the purpose of these articles is to say, how did we get here? To do a, a, a study and say, how, how did we get where we are today? Because this is not our most shining moment as the body of Christ. Like, how did we get here? And what's the way forward? Is there hope? And if there is, what is the way forward? What is that path? So I think it's important that as we, as a church, you know, we're, we're going to be praying this week over the church. And we're going to be praying over the church, you know, big C the church in our city, our nation, our world. But specifically, make no mistake, we're praying for ourselves. We're praying for Vineyard Voice. We're praying for the way that we carry God's image in our community. How do we steward that? And how do we, how do we grow in, the, in, in being uh, effective in who God's called us to be? So we're going to spend each day praying for the church. Each, each day this week, the way that this, uh, this series is structured is there's a banner prayer, a banner passage that we pray every day of the week that's, that's on that week's focus. And then each day, there's also a second prayer that's just for that day. And so uh, this week, Mike, if you're subscribed to the devotions, either you know, email or podcast, you're going to have a chance to, one, to read or to listen to this prayer that we're going to be in today. And then there'll be a corresponding you know, prayer point for the day that's tied to an, a second passage. So um, the prayer we're going to be in today, I, I, I've never caught this before. I've, of course, I've read this prayer, but here's what I've never caught. This is the first recorded prayer of the early church. Okay, we, we were told, even the passage we were in a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, that when the church first was birthed in Jerusalem and, 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 and the church was limited, like that, that's where it began and that's, that's all that it existed. You could go anywhere in the Roman Empire and you would not find a Christian church, as we would call it, except for in Jerusalem. And when it was birthed, it said that they devoted themselves to a number of things, one of which was prayer together, corporate prayer. As a church, when they gathered, one of the things they devoted themselves to was prayer. So we know that they were praying. We just don't know what they were praying until today. Today is the first example we have of something that the church together was saying, we need to pray into this together. So uh, that's the prayer. We're going to spend a little bit of time just setting up the context because my hope is that as you pray this this week, I hope as we pray this prayer this week, that we can, we can hear the prayer, but, but place it in its context and think, how does that apply for us today in our time and in our place? So here's the, the occasion for that first recorded prayer. Uh, it's in Acts chapter three and four is the story. I'm just gonna kind of give you the highlights. First of all, on this day, Peter and John were making their way to the temple for fixed hour prayer at three o'clock. Uh, this was part of their daily rhythm. Uh, this is in the days of the early church again, when the footprint of the church had not expanded beyond Jerusalem. In fact, um, this is before persecution began, that uh, full-on persecution that would cause the church to scatter to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, but this was part of Peter and John. This was part of their daily rhythm. They came from a culture that practiced daily prayer. And so that was part of their rhythm. And on this particular day, they were just doing what they did every day at three o'clock. They made their way to the temple to be part of the corporate prayer gathering. And it was no, nothing spectacular or, or nothing that, they, that we know of that they were expecting that day. But something happened. Their plans were interrupted when they encountered a man who, had, who was crippled since birth. Luke, the narrator of this story, tells us that, that this man had been crippled uh, since birth and he was over 40 years old. 
So you can imagine that, that for 40 years, and, and Luke tells us that, that his life was basically that every day his friends and family would carry him to the most popular entrance to the temple, the, the, the gate that was the most commonly used. And they would place him at the gate of the temple so the people coming and going from their religious duties might see him and have pity on him. Okay, good strategy. Like if you're going to panhandle anywhere, panhandling in a place where people are aware of, you know, religious duties and activities, like that's a good place. So he wasn't alone in that. Here's why that's important though. Because Peter and John have walked past him before. This is their daily rhythm. They, they walk past this guy before. Maybe they've thrown a coin, a, maybe a denarii in his cup before. They've walked before him, they've walked past him with Jesus. Okay, this guy's over 40 years old. He, this is his daily rhythm, which means during Jesus' earthly ministry, when Jesus came and went from the temple, he walked past this guy and yet evidently never healed him. That's interesting. Something's different on this day, though. On this day, something nudges their attention and they pause. I, they're, they're on their way into the temple and I imagine they're running late because Christians are usually running late. And they're like, you know what? It's starting at three o'clock. John, come on, John, can you walk faster? And then this guy calls out to them. And, and on this occasion, they pause. Now, why is it that they pause that day? We, scripture tells us that there's times when suddenly we notice that something ordinary there's, there's something going on with it. In fact, we're told in Exodus that Moses was one day tending sheep out in the wilderness and off to the side, he saw a, a bush that was aflame with fire, but not burning up. Okay, we, I mean, by all accounts, that, that really happened. But, but, here, but metaphorically, there was something that was an ordinary thing that on that day was aflame with the activity of God. Divine activity was all around that normal thing and he paid attention to it. And it says that when he paid attention to it, God spoke to him. Sometimes we're going about our ordinary day and God nudges us and we suddenly see something that maybe we pass by every day, but on this day, it captures our attention. And on this particular day, it's, it's a flame with the activity of God. And in that moment, God wants to do something. In Moses' case, God wanted to speak. In this case, they recognize that God's going to heal this guy. Peter and John, they're compelled to pause from going into prayer. Peter speaks to him in the name of Jesus. Some of you know what happens next. Uh, Peter searches his pockets and he's like, dude, I don't have any cash. Do you take debit cards? Do you have a square reader? No. He's, like, he's like, I don't have any cash, dude, but I'll tell you what, I followed Jesus and I've seen him do this a lot of times. So what I, what I don't have is cash for you, but I'll give you what I do have because I've seen Jesus do it so many times. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, some of you know this story. Did you grow up in Sunday school? Anybody grow up in Sunday school? We have a song about it. Silver and gold have I none. Such as I have give I you. Remember the song? I hated this song. <laughs> Not the song in particular. I just hated any song that had activity. Action songs, Father Abraham. I hated them all, right? But this man gets fully healed. In that split second, 40 years, he's lived as a cripple he's healed, which means the ankles that have never supported his weight, the legs that have never, the, the legs that have never moved, the muscles that have never been formed, the knees that have never walked, let alone run or danced or skipped or leaped, suddenly he's made strong and he gets up and he's so excited and he goes jumping and dancing and leaping into the temple courts ahead of them and they follow him in and this, of course, attracts a crowd. A large crowd gathers around Peter and John and the formerly crippled man. Now, why does the crowd gather? For a couple of reasons. One, this guy's highly visible. Other people who also go to the temple every day have passed him every day. Every day have to make the choice, do I, you know, throw him a coin or not? And so this guy's highly visible. And his healing was highly difficult because everybody knew he'd been there for as long as they can possibly remember. And on this day, they look around, they see him jumping and leaping and dancing, and that captures their attention. So suddenly they're attentive, they're curious what happened, they're receptive. And I want to point out something. This crowd that gathers, they are not followers of Jesus. They're religious people, they're going to the temple to pray, but they are not followers of Jesus yet. 
In fact, they're among those who were just a few maybe months ago calling for Jesus' crucifixion. They're among those who, who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They weren't just indifferent about Jesus. Sometimes we encounter people who are just kind of like, eh, meh. Some people are indifferent. These people were not only indifferent, they were actively hostile against faith in Jesus. They'd already, their worldview had already decided that Jesus was, didn't fit into their worldview and there's no way that he could be the son of God because of the way they process things. And so they've rejected him. But this thing, this gets past their defenses. This is the way, this is the way supernatural healing works. When there's a supernatural miracle of some kind, it works as a sign that gets past people's defenses. Because suddenly people are like, okay, they're challenged in a way that they can't argue with. Something extraordinary has happened that lifts their attention above their daily routine as well. So they pause from going into prayer and they all stop in the temple courts just to listen. Peter speaks boldly. He, he, sees, he seizes this moment, sees what's going on and decides, you know what, John? We're not gathering for corporate prayer. This is what God's doing right now. And so he speaks boldly. Peter saw his opportunity and he addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what's so surprising about this? Why stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life. That's a great statement. That's like, wow, that's a goosebump moment. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you did and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. This is basically the highlights. It's the cliff notes of Peter's sermon that day. Uh, you know, it was three o'clock in the afternoon when they're making their way in for prayer. He preaches for a while. At some point, as the sun's going down, the temple police, who've, and, and the temple, so, so the temple had security. The temple police and the temple priests, they've been kind of watching this from the perimeter. But at some point, they get fed up and they interrupt Peter and they say, okay, enough. You're not speaking about this man, Jesus, anymore. It says, Luke tells us that they were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were teaching people about Jesus, proclaiming in him there was resurrection. That they were saying that Jesus was no longer in a tomb, that he was actually resurrected, and that that same resurrection life meant there was life available to everyone. Eternal life, new life, resurrected life. And the people should turn and put their faith in him. The temple officials, they arrest Peter and John to silence them. Apparently, they had some sort of like holding cell. The temple has a holding cell. Disneyland has jail. You know that? You know, Disneyland has, there's a jail in Disneyland. Apparently, there's a jail in the temple as well. There's sometimes you don't expect there to be jails in places. So they put Peter and John in the temple holding cell. But it was too little too late because already of that crowd that was gathered today, or that, there that day, 5,000 people heard and responded. And they pivoted. People had formerly already decided that they had rejected Jesus, decided, I think Jesus is true. Why? Because they saw a miraculous healing. And they went, That's a, there's a sign. It got their attention. And in addition to that, I believe the Holy Spirit was convicting them. You know, I, I've wondered, why did Jesus, if, if we know that Jesus went into the temple, why did Jesus choose to walk past this guy? and never heal him. I mean, it seems like Jesus was always drawn towards people that needed his healing, his intervention. And yet he had seemingly walked past this guy. I think in the same way that they got a nudge that day to stop and give him his attention, I think Jesus paid attention to a nudge to wait. Maybe the father said, son, there's some low-hanging fruit there for your disciples after you're gone. Why don't you, why don't you just, just hold on? 
He's going he's gonna to get healed. But just wait. And, and we see that because the result is what? 5,000 people turned and put their faith in Jesus. In the morning, the temple security, they pull Peter and John out of their incarceration. They put them on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high council. This is an intimidating moment. And the council begins to interrogate Peter and John. And Peter is once again empowered and inspired. He's emboldened by the Holy Spirit. And he speaks in the name and power of Jesus. This is what he says to them. The culmination, he says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Sanhedrin, they were surprised by Peter's bold preaching. Perhaps they expected Peter and John to cower uh, after you know, being arrested. Maybe they thought that would intimidate them. Maybe they thought that a, a night in, in incarceration would, you know, would soften them and perhaps diminish their zeal somewhat. But instead, instead of promising, oh, we're so sorry, we'll never do this again, they speak with boldness and they say, this man that we're preaching about, there's, no, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other religious system. There's no other belief system that leads to eternal life except Jesus. That was offensive to them. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. Let me read that again. They could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chambers and conferred among themselves. So this Jewish high council, again, they, they too are actively hostile towards Jesus and his followers. But in this moment, they recognize two things. One, they recognize that these, these men that we've got on trial here are ordinary people, meaning they weren't religious specialists. They weren't religious professionals. In fact, we know that they were fishermen. They were blue-collar, just ordinary people who went about doing ordinary jobs that were part of their culture. As such, you wouldn't have thought that they would pose a threat to the religious establishment. These guys, they, I mean, these guys can't debate with us religiously. But they recognize, so they recognize two things. They recognize, one, that these are ordinary people. And then they also recognize that they've been with Jesus. And I, I don't want to miss that statement. If we get into the prayer in a minute that, that we're, that we're going to be praying through this week, I want you to remember that this is prayed by people who are spending time with Jesus. That means they knew Jesus personally. They knew what he was like. They knew how he reacted to circumstances in the world, how he reacted to religiosity, how he was drawn towards people who were vulnerable, broken, marginalized. They knew what it looked like for the kingdom of God to break into human circumstances. They'd seen it. These are men who had chosen to follow him, who had yielded their lives to being formed to be more like him themselves. They're in a process of transformation to become more like Jesus. They've given their lives to continuing his admission. And in light of that, they were doing the same kind of things that Jesus did. And that, those two things, they were ordinary people, but who spent time with Jesus, that made them dangerous to the status quo in their culture. Church, do you want to be dangerous to the status quo of our culture? Do you want to be a threat to the status quo of our culture? It doesn't require that you're a religious professional. It requires that, you're, that we are ordinary people who are spending time with an extraordinary Savior, who are, are learning from him how to live our lives like he would if he were us. So the high, here's what the high council decided. They, they, they confer with each other, and this is what they say, 416. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they've performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. This is the, this is the Jewish high council, most powerful governing body in, in Israel. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them to never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you 
rather than him, we cannot stop telling people everything that we've seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Okay, that's the setup. That brings us to the prayer that we're, we're about to be in today and throughout this week. And that's the occasion. And so listen to this. Listen to the parallels in their time and in ours. There's some differences, but there's some remarkable parallels as well. This is a time when the, the prayer that they're about to offer, it's a time when followers of Jesus were in the minority within their culture and community. We sometimes describe our own day in, as 21st century Americans as living in a, a post-Christian America or a post-Christendom America, which means that, that there was a time in our nation's history that not so distant past where it seemed like maybe not Christianity itself, maybe not faith and, and discipleship to Jesus itself, but at least Christian values and principles were at the core of, of our culture and, and, and at least had a seat at the table of influence. And increasingly, it feels like Christian values and Christian uh, worldview is, is increasingly becoming marginalized. Okay, So we would describe that as living in a post-Christendom world. Europe's been there for a generation. Canada's 10 years ahead of us. We're, we're rapidly catching up with them. Post-Christendom world. They were not living in a post-Christendom world. They were living in a pre-Christendom world, a pre-Christian world. Again, this was the church did not exist outside of Jerusalem. It started with a small band of people who had been followers of Jesus and was, was quickly multiplying. But that's it. What did they face in their culture as a minority culture? They, they experienced both passive unbelief, people who simply didn't believe in their Jesus, and they also faced active hostility. They didn't have political power or majority influence. I want to say that again. At this time, they had no political power. They had no cultural influence because they, they had no majority. But you know what they had? They had the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have political power. They had the transforming, empowering, supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So their response of these followers of Jesus, it wasn't belligerence. It wasn't belligerence or slander or insult. They didn't give the finger to the Sanhedrin, not literally and not metaphorically. They didn't print up antagonistic bumper stickers or yard signs. They didn't threaten to get their political candidate elected next election. You know what they did? They prayed. They didn't draw battle lines but here's what they didn't do. So this is really important because they didn't draw battle lines. They, they, they said, you can't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, if we have to choose between yielding to human will or God's will, if you make us choose between those two, we're going to choose God's will. But you know what? They didn't say it in a way that was antagonistic. They simply stated the facts and then they engaged. Now, human tendency, we have a, we have a propensity as humans. This is recognized by science, by, you know, by everyone, we have a propensity that when we're in conflict, when we're attacked, or when we feel threatened, or when we're in conflict, we have a propensity to, to do one of two things, to either fight or flight, right? And most of us lean into one of those more than the other. You probably know your default. Either you're a fighter or you're an avoider, right? I tend to be the, the the peacemaker who doesn't want conflict, I'll avoid conflict at all costs. They didn't do either of those things. They didn't get into an aggressive fight, but they also didn't just retreat to the upper room and say, well, you know what? Apparently they don't want this Jesus, so let's just go to the upper room. We'll, we'll pray, we'll sing songs, and we'll just wait for him to come back. They didn't do either one of those things. They continued to engage, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, that said, here's the first recorded prayer of the early church. When they were released, meaning Peter and John, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. Again, this is the first corporate prayer. They lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David said it, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to read what they said, but I just want you to pay attention to this. As they begin this prayer, they don't anchor into what they're experiencing in their human circumstances. They anchor into who God is. They anchor not, not into their circumstances or the opposition of the surrounding culture. They anchor into God as sovereign Lord, creator of everything. That's the foundation they're about to pray from, live from, react from, respond from, is the foundation that, okay, God, you made everything. And, and though people oppose you at times, you are in control. That's why they, they reference this psalm. They start here with this reality that God is the sovereign God, and that awakens faith-filled prayer. They go on to pray, and basically they, they reference Psalm chapter 2. They pray through Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. This is, they're, they're, they're borrowing from the Hebrew scriptures from Psalm 2, and they're saying, you know what? People have always opposed God, and God's not threatened by it. If you read Psalm 2, it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? He who sits in heaven laughs. Because God's not threatened by human, humankind's rebellion or rejection of him. He's going to continue to advance his plans. So they say, for example, it's, it happened in our day right here, Acts 4.27, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is everybody. Is the political power, it's the Jews, it's the Gentiles. See, everybody was gathered against you to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Meaning, they all opposed you and you were never out of control. You were continuing to advance your plans for rescuing and redeeming creation. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I love that. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's our prayer for this week. That's our prayer. I want, I want to recognize something here. I want to recognize the posture of these early Christians towards their culture. And even though they were being confronted with both passive rejection of Jesus and active hostility, they responded by praying, say, God, would you help us to be faithful to your message, to keep proclaiming your message, and would you keep healing people? And when they're praying for healing, they're not praying for healing of each other. Although I'm, I'm confident that when they got sick or had somebody that, was, you know, that needed prayer, they prayed for one another. But in this context, they're saying, God, would you keep healing unbelievers as a sign so that people will turn to you, so that those who have rejected you or are resistant to you will turn towards you in faith. They're praying for the very people who are oppressing them, that God would, would, would supernaturally empower them to reach them through signs. They prayed as ordinary people who believed and obeyed an extraordinary God. And they basically said, God, be made visible through us. Be made visible through us. Make yourself known as you truly are. They don't pray out of vindictiveness or for vengeance. They want to see their community who was resisting God come to know him as he really is. And so they ask for healing. And here's what happens. They pray and together they receive the Holy Spirit, empowering them to react and respond to the situation in their day. Now, make no mistake. These are people who have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And in you know, Jesus, before his ascension to heaven, told the disciples, he said, you're going to continue the work that I've begun, and I'm sending you, I'm commissioning you to go to beginning in your town and to take this to the whole world, but don't do it. Time out. Pause and wait until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit because you can't do this. You are very ordinary people. You can't do this without an extraordinary God empowering you, an indwelling Holy Spirit living and, and, and manifesting out of you. And so don't try and do this on your own. That has happened. But in this moment, as they gather together and say, say, God, you see what's going on. Would you do it again? The Holy Spirit comes on them again. 
This is a subsequent infilling. That's why we sang, sing songs like we sang this morning. The worship team led us in, a, in this song. Uh, Holy Spirit, what was it? <laughs> Fall afresh on us. Fall afresh on us. Fall afresh on me. It's not that, that, that we haven't already received the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit comes and goes, but we want to once again yield ourselves, open ourselves, and say, God, would you do it again? And God meets them there. And so what he does is he manifests the Holy Spirit in them in a way that's relevant for their situation. Here's what I want to say this morning. That is a way that was relevant for their day, and that's what they needed. They needed boldness to keep speaking in the face of opposition. As a cultural minority, they needed they needed boldness if they were going to keep proclaiming Jesus while the Supreme Court of their nation was saying, stop it. They needed boldness. And that was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. My question is, what manifestation of the Holy Spirit do we need today? And I think it's all of them. We say yes to every manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which includes miraculous healing. We, we as a church believe that God's still healing people today. We see it happen. We, we see God do it. We, we, we believe in it. We ask for it. Doesn't happen, doesn't happen every single time because we're, we're in between Jesus' first and second coming. When every person gets healed every time, we're on the other side of the second coming. But meanwhile, we ask for down payments. But you know what? There's other manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It's hearts that are softened towards the conditions of our world. And Jesus as he walked on this earth, when he declared that his ministry was now open, when he had his coming out party, one might say, his, his very first message, he quoted from Isaiah 61. He alluded to Isaiah 58. He taught his disciples to engage the world in a way that, that like if you read Matthew 25, basically when God's kingdom breaks into the fallenness of our world, when his rule breaks in and things are done what, what God intended, we see it, it looks like justice. It looks like mercy. It looks like kindness. It looks like, like love for enemies. It looks like a whole lot of things. So we have a tool today that we're, if, ushers, could you, Kim, could you pass these out? If you're here on campus, Kim's going to, Kim and a bunch of people, we're going to pass these out. So if you don't get one of these, raise your hand until you have one. If you're online, if you go to that same vineyardboise.org slash 40 days, in fact, we'll put up the QR code again here. If you put that, if you go to that, there's a PDF. You can download this PDF or you can, um, you can pick these up in the office lobby. But this is a, a piece, um, while, while they're bringing these around, I'm going to unpack it a little bit and we'll put it back up on the screen so that if you're online, you, can we put that back up? If you're online, I want you to be able to read this along with us. Can we get that one back up, the commission to heal? There we go. So here's what it says. And we, we, we actually created these a few years ago, and I updated them a little bit this week. We created them as a permission slip. You know, like if you're giving your child permission to leave campus, you know, during school or something like that. We changed the language from permission to commission because permission's kind of passive. God, Jesus has given his followers more than permission to bring his kingdom in the world. He's commanded us to do so. He's commissioned us to do so. And so here's the things that look like. And, you know, as a church, we often say, we, we say, make the invisible God visible. That's kind of a banner. Make the invisible God visible. That is audacious for one thing. Like, really? Ordinary people making the invisible God visible? It's audacious, and it's what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, Jesus, no one has ever seen the Father, but Jesus the Son has made him known. And Jesus instructed his followers to keep doing what he did. So yes, it's audacious, but that's what we're commanded to do. But it's also kind of abstract. A lot of times on Sunday, when, when, as we're leaving, I say, okay, go make the invisible God visible. But what does that mean? Here's what it means. Every one of these commands come out of Scripture. Every one of these commands, they come out of Isaiah 58, they come out of Isaiah 61, they come out of Matthew 25. These are threads that are all through Scripture. So I've left a blank for you to write your name in. I'm going to challenge you to do that, to take ownership of this, that when you pray this week, put your name in there and say, God, if you give me a nudge, if you show me an ordinary circumstance in my world where you want to move, would you highlight that to me this week? 
and I'll respond. I'll move towards it. I hereby commission, in my case, Trevor, with power and authority to bring God's healing will from heaven into the circumstances they will encounter here on earth today. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. He told us to pray this. What does that look like? Heal the sick, free the enslaved, welcome the stranger, the foreigner, immigrant, love the unlovable, embrace the enemy, feed the hungry, show mercy to the offender, loose the chains of injustice, speak out for the voiceless, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, untie those bound by Satan, make the invisible God visible. When we say make the invisible God, those are expressions of what it looks like. And those are things we can't do as ordinary people, but as ordinary people yielded to an extraordinary God, we can move towards the pain of this world. I want to call your attention to something. Just in closing, here we're going to sing that song in just a moment. And it's going to be the way we close in prayer today. We're going to sing that song again, the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, fall afresh, thank you. But I'm going to ask us, can, can we make it plural? Because this was a corporate prayer they played together. And then God shook what needed to be shooken. I think God literally shook their building. My prayer this week has been, God, would you shake what must be shaken so that we can be the church that you're calling us to be? Lord, refine us, purify us, empower us. Shake what needs to be shaken. Can I point something out? When you look at this list on here, some of these are things, are causes that we would associate with liberal politics, and some of them are causes that we would associate with conservative politics. And when Jesus commanded his followers to to address the brokenness of the world and to move towards it, it had nothing to do with politics. It's the kingdom of God breaking in. And if there's things on here that that we've rejected because we associated them with, with a political party that maybe we didn't affiliate with, we need to repent of that. We need to let that be shaken. Here's what shook me. It's going to be really transparent. My, <clears throat> my daughters yesterday attended a lunch that was being offered for people that are homeless or the more common terminology is houseless because homeless sometimes has kind of judgmental tones to it. But there was a, a potluck being offered for them where it was just like, can we move towards people that are homeless with compassion? Acknowledging that it's really cold outside right now. That if you don't have a home, a place to lay your head that's warm, like we should move with compassion towards that. Now that's a, politically, that is a, what's the solution to that? That is a, a challenging dynamic. And, there's, and you, if you paint it with a black and white, this is the solution, it, it's, it's, it's complex. But there was a group of people who moved towards it with compassion and there was another group of people who were standing there protesting their compassion. People with, in some cases, armed, in some cases, carrying flags. And here's the question my daughter asked me that, that grieved me. She said, as we were sitting there having lunch with these people and talking to them, I saw the protesters and I wondered how many of them that were standing there protesting us would be standing at church tomorrow singing songs to God. Church, if we're going to have a future, it's getting out of the politics and getting back to the kingdom of God and saying, God, bring your kingdom, start it in me, and expand it through the world. Don't let issues of justice and mercy and kindness be co-opted by a political party that you reject and resist on either side. All of these things you can associate with a, with a political party. For us, it's not political. It's the kingdom of God. So when you're ready, I want to challenge you to write your name in on this.
This is, this is a piece that you can post somewhere. You can keep it. Post it where you get reminded every day. God, this is what it looks like for me to be available to you, to be an ordinary person yielded to an extraordinary God. Would you show me the things that you want me to move towards today? Would you stand with me? And worship team, would you lead us in that song once again? on me, come wake me from my sleep, blow through, blow through the caverns of my soul, pour in me to overflow. Spirit of the living God. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise that it is you who builds your church. You are the, the source. You are the architect. You are the author, the designer. You are the, the redeemer, the builder. You are the head of your church. And God, would you see us today as we, this week, as we pray for our church, Lord, we, we invite you to shake what, means, what must be shaken. We ask that you would fill us once again, that you would bring us together in united prayer, yielded prayer, faith-filled prayer, that we would move towards the brokenness of our world, that we would carry your image in a way that is faithful to who you are, like those first disciples who they, they recognized they'd spent time with you. As we spend time with you and, and in prayer, in, in your word, 
would you show us how you feel about the circumstances of our world? Would you help us to move towards them as people of your kingdom, as your followers carrying your image, carrying your power? And Lord, as, as we bring transformation naturally, supernaturally into our world, pray that people will come to know you as you truly are. We ask for those who, who are, are yet unconvinced of who you are, that they would come to know you and that our lives would not be a barrier, but our lives would be winsome. So we offer ourselves to you. Come and fill this church. Guide our prayers this week, Lord, and open our eyes to, to those places and those circumstances where you are at work and where we're invited to cooperate with you. We ask this for your glory. We ask this for the sake of others. And we know that in this is our true joy, our abundant life. Amen. Again, if you're joining online, these are a PDF on the prayer website, the prayer page of the website. We'll also have them at the, at the welcome counter all week in the reception. If you need prayer this morning, we do pray for others and we also pray for uh, one another. And so if you need prayer for anything this morning, I'm gonna invite you to just go underneath the screens here or to type it into your, um, the window of your, your platform there if you're online and uh, we'll pray with one another. Apart from that, go, what? Make the invisible God visible, amen. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.